This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Supriya Chopra, who is in the Department of Radiation Oncology, Advanced Center for Treatment, Research, and Education in Cancer, Tata Memorial Center in Mumbai, India. She is the primary author of the article recently published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology, Late Toxicity After Adjuvant Conventional Radiation Versus Image-Guided Intensity Modulated Radiotherapy for Cervical ca Cancer, PARSER, a Randomized Control Trial. Um, Dr. Stropra, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for your time and, uh, and uh, allowing us to discuss this uh, important study. Thank you so much for your invitation. It's a pleasure for me to be here. Fantastic. So uh, we have uh, lots of questions to, uh, to discuss and hopefully we'll be able to cover um, all of them. But let's start by discussing as to why you thought uh, this was an important study to uh, perform. And if you can also put in context with regards to what we already knew about this topic from prior studies. So I think the study I conceptualized when I joined the department way back in 2009, 2010. And at that time, gynecological IMRT was not very common. People used to do head and neck IMRT, prostate cancer IMRT. But then when we looked into the clinical outcomes of patients, a substantial proportion of patients who received post-operative radiotherapy and in our setting cervix cancer is more common than endometrial cancer, these patients used to come on long-term follow-up having a lot of complaints related to, you know, lower abdominal pain, sometimes rarely with subacute intestinal obstruction or various kind of gastrointestinal symptoms. And then there were a lot of dosimetric studies that were being done in field of radiation oncology that were already showing that um, advanced techniques like image-guided IMRT could reduce uh, a lot of those that goes to normal structure. So I think that was the primary motivating factor to start this study and to test this advanced radiation technique because most of the people would already begin to use IMRT, but there was no level one evidence to prove its benefit. So with these techniques, we couldn't imagine that disease outcomes would be different, but toxicity could be substantially reduced. And it was quite a decision actually at that time to design a study with primary endpoint of late toxicity. So I guess that was the main motivation to do that. Yeah, and, and as you mentioned, many centers were starting to use IMRT sort of like as their standard without these types of, uh, of studies. But I wonder if also if you can um, uh, tell our audience who may not be as familiar with some of this terminology, what is the difference between IMRT and 3D conformal radiotherapy? So I explain like this to the audience and also to patients. So when I have to explain IMRT, those who don't know radiation, I tell them that it's like a keyhole surgery. You do a keyhole radiation, much like laparoscopic surgery. Mm -hmm. And if you were to do open surgery, that is like, you know, giving more like conformal, conventional radiation. So people understand it very well. So when we do 3D conformal radiotherapy, that means you end up treating the pelvic lymph nodes, the tumor bed. But the way radiation beams are used, they end up irradiating almost everything in the pelvis. 
which means a major part of rectum, bladder, and also the small bowel that collapses into the pelvis after surgery. Whereas if you use image by the diamati, you have an option to very carefully, uh, you know, avoid all these organs at risk, which are sensitive also to both early and late effects of radiation. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, almost like a more targeted radiation, if you if you will. Um, so for the Parser study, um, who was eligible for this study, and also who did you exclude? So post-operative radiation actually is used for both endometrial and cervix cancer. But when we started this study at that time, you know, the results of protectin started coming, where vaginal brachytherapy alone would be enough for a substantial proportion of patients with endometrial cancer. And then we also started to know that there will be 15 chemo used in endometrial cancer. So we wanted to keep our study, you know, very uniform and very focused to begin with so that there is not too much of perturbation in patient population. So we decided to do only in patients of cervix cancer who would need post-operative radiation with or without concurrent chemotherapy. And because we wanted, you know, the study design and the test intervention to be very similar in all the patients. We excluded patients who would have residual enlarged lymph nodes either in the pelvis or parallelic region, or we also included patients who were HIV positive because we do see a small proportion of patients who are HIV positive. So these were the patients who were excluded who would be at baseline risk of increased morbidity mm-hmm. following radiation and also excluded patients with endometrial cancer because of the change in treatment that was happening during those years. Yeah, and and I, I'm sure also the, the the radiation oncologists listening to the the podcast um, would want to know if you can explain a little bit regarding the details of the target delineation and planning of the radiation. Okay, so I think we tried to follow very uniform guidelines because we were very sensitive that when this gets published, it will be compared with other trials, and during those years. These were the NRG and RTOG guidelines that were getting published for post-operative radiation. So we adapted those guidelines and tried to use a protocol which was very similar to what uh, NRG or RTOG studies were using. The only thing that we did was we used a relatively slightly relaxed delineation of the tumor bed because if you look into the NRG guidelines, they were just delineate a sliver of tissue posterior to bladder and anterior to rectum. Mm -hmm. But we wanted to be sure that, you know, we go slightly more anteriorly, maybe five or six millimeter more than the vaginal area. The reason for that is, I think you can explain it the best as a surgeon, but to push away the bladder, there would always be slight surgical violation. So we wanted to account for that violation of anatomical boundaries. Mm -hmm. So pretty much similar to NRG and RTH guidelines with slight uh, variation of how the anterior vaginal structures were handled. And 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 certainly as a as a follow up to that, I mean I, I, one of our one of our uh, questions coming in from from our fellows and I'll I'll, I'll ask it here because I think is it, it goes along with uh, your your explanation of the uh, of the planning. 
Um, her, her name is Emma Allison. She's from Australia, and she asked, you know, the, the criticism uh, of trials involving radiation therapy often has included sort of like a lack of quality assurance of the radiation therapy, um, including components such as achieving target volume in the contouring. How did you address assuring consistency in the use of IMRT in this study? Okay. So I think we come from a very different place. So in U.S. and I would also say in Europe, people are used to doing a lot of multicentric trials. Here in Tata, us being a large institution with one or two other satellite sites, so we, even though it was multicentric, it was possible for me to review all the plans. So it was the principal investigator who reviewed all the contours and plans, mm. irrespective who is delineating. So I think that was one major part of the quality assurance. And then second thing was because we treated all the patients on uh, tomotherapy, which is rotational IMRT, all patients had to have daily megavoltage uh, CT scan prior to treatment. So that would ensure where and how the treatment is delivered. And in the standard arm also, which is 3D conformal, we would have an image verification before doing daily treatment. So I think that brought quite a quality assurance in how both the arms and across the centers we provided. And there was a set protocol to avoid bowel, bladder, and rectum. So we did use a lot of prospective dose constraints, which we initially published even before starting this trial. So we tried to adhere to those uh, goals that we defined. Yeah, and it speaks to the massive effort, uh, obviously, put by the investigators to, to maintain that quality. Um, so again, also, before we get into the, uh, the objectives of the study in terms of the methodology and the, and the evaluation of patients, one of the questions that, that came up as we were discussing this uh, manuscript was, you know, some might say that a routine yearly CT scan is not routine practice and, and that perhaps this might have impacted the, the results of the study, particularly as it pertains to uh, recurrences and therefore disease-free survival. Um, how would you respond to, to these comments? So if you look through the manuscript, I think we've already uh, referred to the trial policy. Of course, in routine clinical practice, you would not do follow-up imaging on patients, right? Unless and until their symptoms. But in the clinical trial, we did have annual CT scan going up to the first five years. And we reported the study at 48 months. And this time point of 48 months is a relatively stable time point for disease relapse, and I would say after six years, generally you would see lesser and lesser close to no relapses. And the trial, we sealed off the trial database in January 2020, and now we are in September 21. I don't remember seeing more than one or two additional recurrences, so I think the data is quite stable mm -hmm. for disease-free survival. Yeah, so... Uh Let's get now to the points of the objectives. What was the primary objective of the PARSER uh, trial? And, uh, and if you could speak also a little bit about the secondary objectives. Yeah. So I think um, we thought a lot about it because it was very easy to design a study for acute morbidity, right? You get the trial also reported early. Mm -hmm. But we really thought that for these advanced techniques and also coming from a place where resources are not very great, right, in the community. 
So we wanted to be sure that if we are using that one technique that ends up benefiting patients long term. So it was a matter of very careful choice that we said that it has to be late toxicity. And when we audit all our patients in the system, even before starting this trial, gastrointestinal toxicity, what the most common toxicity in these patients? So the primary objective was chosen as late GI toxicity. Mm-hmm. And the secondary objectives were related to acute toxicity, toxicity of other organs, quality of life and disease outcomes. So, and I think what was unique about our trial was that before starting this trial, we compared the standard toxicity criteria of reporting. And if you use the common method like RTOG, it tends to under-report toxicity a bit. So even though it's a late radiation effect trial, we chose to use CTCA across 11 GI subscales because if you just use the broader scales of RTOG, you would miss 10 to 12% of patients. And we also demonstrated stability of recording these symptoms on follow-up because toxicity can be very different based on who's assessing it, right? Mm-hmm. So the primary objective was late toxicity and we chose a lot of skills which would capture the spectrum of GI toxicity. Like for example, it was just not limited to abdominal cramps, but we also recorded bloating, malabsorption, then, um, for example, if patient has lower abdominal pain and constipation. So all kinds of symptoms uh, were recorded in um, the study across the arms. Yeah. And, and I was wondering if you can briefly talk a little bit about the statistical design and if you can expand this to, I understand the primary endpoint was modified at the interim analyses? Yes. And so... Actually, this is a very good story. So let me tell you this thing. So entire radiation oncology, medical oncology doesn't deal with it. Maybe surgical oncology does. Mm-hmm. So how do we report late effects? We report them as absolute proportions, right? And we always take the denominator as number of patients. But what happens is that all patients don't live to, towards the end of reporting trial. So when we did our interim analysis, it was supposed to be test of proportions. And we saw that, you know, we initially proposed that there would be a difference of like 18% versus 5%, 13% difference in the trial. And then interim analysis happened, we saw it's 24 and 11%. And then, you know, uh, it was very obvious to us that, you know, as follow-up is evolving, not the same number of patients are reaching a particular time point, which means that the real toxicity may be way higher than that gets captured by just testing proportions. So we went back to a lot of literature again and spent, you know, 0.03 alpha of the study in to view these results and then deciding that, okay, there will be just tests of proportions, but it has to be time to event. And this, we looked back into publications way back in 1995, and I must quote some of the publications of Sorin Benson for that, which formed a lot of motivation to now convert this toxicity assessment as time to event. Because proportionate assessment going by just denominator of patients recruited is not a fair way because there is decreasing numbers as time evolves. So that was the main main motivation to change. And because there was no background literature of toxicity proportions, we had to take the interim analysis information into account to remodel the study. And I personally think 
that that is the power of this study because trial designs have to evolve based on new information that becomes available. Mm-hmm. So that was the main motivation to change. Yeah, and I believe that led to a final sample size of uh, about 300 patients. Um, yes. Which then brings me to, to uh, my next question. Um, you mentioned there were multiple yeah. institutions. How many centers in total participated in the PARSA trial? So we recruited through three locations of the Tata Memorial Center, one in Mumbai, one in Navi Mumbai, and another in north of India. So there were three locations of the Tata Memorial Center that participated. Okay, very well. So now getting on to the results. What did the Parser trial show yeah. us? Okay, I think many things. So first and foremost is that it met the primary endpoint much and the difference was much more than what we would have expected. So if you look at the primary endpoint, which was great or higher GI toxicity, late toxicity, so there was the difference was forty two and twenty one percent. So IMRT reduced the late toxicity, moderate to severe toxicity to almost half. But when we looked into grade three or higher, I think there was quite a difference even in grade three toxicity between I would say in CDCRT 15.5% and around 2.2% in the IGIMRTR. And what we also did was because when you're treating as a clinician, it's not important how one organ system is responding. You would like to know what's genitourinary toxicity or other late toxicities like vaginal stenosis, constitution symptoms, etc. So we did a lot of exploratory analysis also and across analysis, IGIMRT was much better. And I I think that is the main message. But when we look into the patient-reported outcomes in the study, the differences are narrow. And I see two reasons for that. One is that not all patients fill up quality of life. That is reason number one, because a patient who has come in fabricate intestinal obstruction is never going to be fit enough to, you know, mm-hmm. fill in a quality of life. They will be in OR, right? So many of these events don't get captured. And second thing is that I think there is a lot of socio-cultural impact in how patients across the globe report quality of life. And in general, as a person treating women's cancer, I noticed that, you know, at least in our part of the world, women don't complain. So it's very difficult to extract, you know, quality of life differences. So the second thing that I realized is that when you have radiotherapy intervention trials, the patient-reported outcomes on which there is a lot of focus in the Western world, you cannot apply the same results to different continents because the value judgment of people is very different. So I think that was the second most important learning from the trial. And the third most important learning from the trial was that, which is, of course, which is our work in progress and will be published soon, is that CTCA is also very artificial in capturing patient toxicity because it's a snapshot. We don't know what happens longitudinally. So in future, there will be some work from our group which will report into, you know, imputation of the time into adverse events. So yeah. these were the three main lessons for us. Yeah, these these are really very uh, interesting point, and in uh, in uh, obviously in addition to the to the benefits found of IMRT, you bring up a, a really very uh, interesting point of actually we, we discuss w- with regards to patient reported outcomes in different cultures or, or different regions of the world. So uh, um, definitely, 
it, it's a, a very important observation as well. Um, one of the questions that um, came up with one, from one of our um, uh, journal fellows, Eric Estrada from Guatemala, he asked, were the rates of chemo radiation balanced between uh, the groups? And certainly could that have impacted toxicity? Yeah, so there was a provision for stratification based on use of chemotherapy as well as type of surgery because these are the factors which could impact the toxicity. So there is there was of course a balance because there was pre-planned stratification. And and uh, you know when, when we look at at um, at the results of this study, uh, obviously it, it, it's a very consistent message and and. You know, certainly as radiation oncologists, one can uh, say, well, of course, these, these are the shown benefits. But wh why is, is IMRT not the standard everywhere? It's not the standard because it was not proven. Now it's the standard. Because we did not have level one evidence. And if you look into the MRG trial, it started at around the same level, but got published, I think, in 2018. Uh, so what happened... Uh, was that there was a difference in acute toxicity and then at year one there was a difference in late toxicity and on year three follow-up there was no difference in IMRT. So I think some kind of these results also influence practice. So till Pasha came, there was no concrete evidence that IMRT reduces long-term toxicity mm -hmm. in a convincing manner. So hence it was not standard of care everywhere. And then now it should be, yeah. and it's already all the guidelines have changed. Exactly. So I was going to ask that. So are, are we seeing a change in guidelines uh, moving forward? Now, one of the one of the uh, additional uh, uh, questions with regards to the late toxicity. Um, could this have been impacted by, you know, certainly the, the, the patient's knowledge of the treatment arm that they were in um, and, and the reporting of those toxicities and the recording of those toxicities? Yes, I, I really think it's a very good question because it's not only the patients, even physicians who are not blinded. So I really think that, you know, a small proposal, there could be a bias. I cannot exclude that bias. But that would affect maybe grade 2 toxicity, where outcomes are much more softer if you're asking that you have bloating, pain. So you can, of course, have an influence, right? And patients can also be influenced. But then there were a lot of objective endpoints like diarrhea, SAIO, and you clearly see that even in grade 3 toxicity, there is a clear difference in two arms. So I cannot exclude that there could have been a minor effect. But I think if you see the difference in the curves uh, in the main paper, it's hard to ignore. And, and, um, and as a, uh, looking specifically yeah. at some of these toxicities, uh, you know, Emma Allison from Australia asked, you know, certainly uh, the difference in, in bowel obstruction. Um, was there any consideration given to this outcome at the interim analysis? Uh, with regards to uh, changing, uh, moving forward in the study? So, I was the person who wanted to stop almost the study at interim analysis because I thought that even though there is no difference in grade 2 trial, uh, grade 2 toxicity, but in grade 3 toxicity, there was beginning to be difference. But 
it was not statistically significant at interim analysis. So we could not stop this trial and it had to go on for it to clearly show a difference. So, and uh, there is a clear difference in bowel obstruction. And since you can already see in the trial and now also in our routine practice, the, most, the biggest thing that has come down after starting IMRT is actually the bowel obstruction rates. Yeah, and obviously, yeah, and, and, and that obviously is very impacting for obviously patient morbidity and, and overall outcomes. So, um, again, uh, a testament to the to the benefits of, of the approach. Now, I wanted to ask you one of the things that I, I was uh, curious about, and I noticed that in uh, in the study, the majority of the patients underwent open uh, surgery, and it, this was a study from 2011 to 2019. So, certainly before. We have published the results of, of the LAC trial uh, as it pertains to radical hysterectomy. Um, is it the standard in in, uh, in these centers to perform open uh, radical hysterectomies? Okay, I really like this question because it's coming from you. So <laughs> let me explain. <laughs> let it, let me explain it in this way. So you know, laparoscopy of course requires a lot of skill. So that is restricted to only centers of high expertise, which are high high volume cancer centers. But many times patients get operated in the community. And within our institution also, between surgeons, there was quite a difference in what they prefer. So whereas some of our surgeons were hardcore believers of laparoscopy, there were others who did not believe in laparoscopy. So hence you see a very, very high utilization of open and actually, you know, I'm happy now <laughs> to get also results of LACC trial because otherwise it would have definitely impacted the DFS outcomes, possibly. And then I would have to answer more questions. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> one, 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 le one less question that you have to address to the, uh, to the reviewers, right? Um, so then now, uh, one of the other things also that we were discussing is that it seemed like almost half the patients underwent a simple hysterectomy and not a radical hysterectomy. Um, do you think this might have impacted uh, the results of, uh, of the study or the applicability of this, uh, of this approach? You know, this is actually a very good question. Now, you know, this brings us to the second part because, you know, a lot of patients get uh, operated in the peripheral hospitals, right, where they may not, and that is the reality is vast majority of the world where cervical cancer is very common, mm -hmm. right, that patients would undergo hysterectomy because they have a very small tumor that is being seen, but there would not be facilities to do our dimes. So our policy was to give all these patients who have undergone simple hysterectomy because you won't have the risk factors very clearly to offer them chemoradiation. So actually, if you look at the forest plot, the results of this cohort are slightly better than that of Verdine because one, these were probably patients with very, very small tumors. Mm -hmm. And second, what we don't know is that they have been offered concurrent chemoradiotherapy. And now with new evolving trials, for example, like STARS and also other trials, we don't know concurrent CTRT. I know there is no evidence to support this, but concurrent CTRT may possibly be better overall for a lot of these patients, but there is no level one evidence for it. So to answer your question that were their outcomes worse, I would say they were equivalent uh, yeah. because of the difference in policy that we had. 
Excellent. And, um, and I think you alluded a little bit to, to this and you talked about uh, patient report outcomes. But uh, again, to, to our audience, what would you say are the highlights of your quality of life assessment from the PARSER trial? Um, I think quality of life assessment, you can, if you look into the results in the manuscript, the differences are much narrower. And I already uh, discussed with you what I think could be the reasons. One is social cultural. Second, patients who are really sick, they don't feel their quality of life. So that could be a major reason. They're not well enough to fit the quality of life. Second thing is the global functional scales. So for symptom scales, uh, you still see a difference. But for functional and overall quality of life skills, you don't see a difference. And I always answer people who ask me, like, why is there no difference in role functioning? And I think the sociocultural reason for that is that women in general in low-middle-income countries don't have an option for their role functioning, right? Mm -hmm. So, for example, there's a woman who's recovered. She is the person who has to work at home. Whether you use 3D CRT or IMRT, she wants to do all the work. So when she comes back, she says her role function is normal. It's a very big sociocultural impact. So my opinion about PROs, I know the entire Western world is like rarely to patient reported outcomes, but I think in international perspective, it is one thing that would fluctuate substantially and clinical trials should possibly not be designed with brandy and point of PROs. Because what will work in one sociocultural system will not work in another sociocultural system if you end up showing the impact on PROs. The second very interesting thing is that very recently actually I saw a paper coming from Protect Group for Endometrium where they looked into 3D CRT IMRT. It's more like a match pair analysis rather than a randomization. But even in the European population and I think there are other world regions which have contributed. So if you look into quality of life there, again, it's collapsed in the sense that you don't see difference between 3D CRT and IMRT. And I think similar observations were there even from NRG 1203, in which even the patient reported a lot of symptoms as compared to what doctors did, but um, the curves were flatter. So our results are exactly the opposite of NRG, where doctors are reporting less symptoms, but patients are reporting more. In our cultural system, doctors are reporting more symptoms and patients are reporting less. <laughs> so I think PROs are, PROs are not stable. And I think this is a fact it will be very difficult for the entire, you know, clinical trial community and for that matter, FDA that tests drugs on improvement on quality of life. Quality of life depends on where you are living and what is your measure of quality of life. Yeah. I think it's one of the most unstable endpoints. Yeah, and, and so obviously a lot of opportunities for validation of quality of life tools across uh, different cultures and regions. So uh, my next question is yeah. from Sarah Nasser in uh, Germany. Uh, she talks about how uh, IMRT results in uh, lower GI toxicity, uh, potentially improvement in quality of life. Uh, do you see that this will also be applicable to patients with other tumors, like, for example, endometrial cancer? I would say almost close to 100%, and if you don't like 100, I would say 99.99. <laughs> so, it will be. <laughs> so, the answer is yes. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> the next question is, uh, actually, several fellows asked this. In, in low- and middle-income countries, access to radiotherapy is difficult, but also universal health care usually does not cover the cost of IMRT. 
Do you think we may need a, a long-term cost-benefit analysis on this approach? I think certainly we need. There is no doubt about it. So let me answer this question in two parts. One is universal health care. So, you know, I also represent a lot in the, for example, UICC and international atomic energy communities. And I know that there is a lot of global move to support universal health care, especially for cervix cancer. So I really envision and at least that is what we are trying in India, and we've changed our guidelines that irrespective from where patient comes from, they should have access to IMRT. The second part is how easy it would be. So every healthcare system is going to be different. Third is cost-benefit analysis, and I think that's very important because you also have to think about economics of investment. And right now we are in the process of doing this cost-benefit analysis for the partial cohort, and I hopefully in future we'll have a result of cost-benefit analysis, but I think every health economy has to do it for its own self. Yeah. Um, now, Supriya, one of the comments I heard when the PARSA trial came out, uh, somebody said, oh, but wait, didn't the NRG 1203 trial already address this question? Can you explain to our audience uh, what's the difference between that study, the NRG 1203 study, versus the PARSA trial? So in our G203 study, I think there are some very strong differences between the two. So NRG had a vast majority of patients with endometrial cancer, 80%, whereas PARSID was 100% cervix cancer. The use of concurrent chemotherapy was way higher in PARSID, close to 80%, 85%. And then I think what is very important is that the primary endpoints were different. So NRG was then patient is on radiotherapy, in week five, how is the patient reported outcome? And in partial trial, it was about the long-term GI effect. So I think that kind of complementary because one answers the acute effects more than endometrial cancer population and the other answers about the cervix cancer in long-term toxicity. But I think the reason where the difference came was the use of scales. I think in NRG, we used four or five scales to capture GI toxicity and we used around 11. So we tried to fetch for more information. So that could also explain the difference in results. Very well. Um, now this next question comes from Natalia Rodriguez in uh, Spain. Um, she says, can you uh, just specify a little bit more about radiobiologic mechanisms and dose-response relationship between uh, acute and long-term side effects? I think it's a good question about the radiobiological mechanism. So most of the acute effects that you see from radiation are from immediate cell kill, that is the loss of mucosal structures. But the long-term side effects, they happen because of <coughs> vascular damages, which is uh, vascular endothelium, which is leading to effects to the mucosa and change in the mucosa. So these are the two guiding mechanisms. But if you ask about, you know, the biological mechanisms, I think as a specialty, now with these results, where we did not see a lot of acute effects translating into late effects, or we could not predict, I think there is a lot more work that is needed in these aspects. And I think a lot of publications now coming about new reasons for GI toxicity, like, for example, microbiome and other things, but I think there is a lot of work to be done. And right now, with the partial data, where we are focusing on is 
to study more of normal tissue complication probability using these models. So I think within three or four years, in collaboration with some of our partners, we will be able to answer this question better. I don't think I have the right answer today. All right, very well. So now let's get on to um, the limitations. Obviously, it's a prospective study, multi-center, but what would you say are some of the limitations of the study? I think I see now quite some limitations. You know, you're always wise in hindsight. So one, when I designed this study, I did not have this understanding of that late effect should be seen as time to event. Now looking back, I'm convinced. So this could have been designed upfront like this. Second thing is that, as you already asked in one of the questions, the lack of blinding of assessors could have been a limitation, right? And also of patients where there could have been some bias. And then, you know, uh, we also uh, recruited over a long period, almost seven or eight years, right? Yeah. So that is one of the limitations. So fortunately, in that time period, the standards did not change and interventions did not change. But uh, that is one of the limitations uh, that we face in study. Yeah, and, and I think obviously it's understandable. See, we see it consistently across anything in terms of surgical or even radiation oncology, prospective studies in gynecologic oncology, usually on average is seven to eight years. So um, I completely uh, understand and agree with you. Now, um, as a last question, now moving forward, how do, we, how do we take in the results of this study into our daily practice and how we discuss uh, treatments with our patients? Okay. So I think first and foremost thing that's happened in our practice so when 2020, for the first time, we analyzed the results because we had already the results. We changed our guidelines way back in 2020. Now, ideally, every woman should get IGIMRT, but we know that reality in the world is very different, right? The high incidence regions will probably not have access. So I think to move forward and what we are trying to do in our practice, because in India also we face these challenges of a lot of people uh, moving radiation, but then, you know, IMRT planning takes time, execution takes time. So in our center, we have moved a lot towards automation and machine learning for doing these tasks. And uh, we want to facilitate the processes so that they can be, that the turnover can be way higher. But if you were to ask about how we move forward overall, the answer is that if you look into the results of this trial, still 20% women have grade 2 morbidity even with IGI marking. Mm -hmm. So the second part where we want to move in our institution is basically a normal tissue complication probability prediction and the ability to choose proton treatments for these patients because I think there is still window for improvement. So one is the practical part of it, that how you can execute it. And the second is the more academic part of it. I, I foresee in GYN cancers, especially for post-op, uh, there would be a case for proton treatments because 20% patients are still having chronic morbidity with IGIMRT, even though it is not serious. Serious morbidity is just 3%, but these women will ultimately be long-term survivors. Why even 20% should live with that kind of morbidity? So I think the future would be, you know, a more... I don't foresee seeing doing any randomized trials on this subject. Because I think when you do randomized trials, you get clear answers. But then, you know, there is a bit of disservice to 50% of the patients when the trials run for too long. And 
I would envision, you know, trials which are more adaptive in their design and we are able to make selection of treatments based on information that we already have using a lot of machine learning and mnemogram based. So there is where we see at least in our center we would like to move. Well, thank you so, so much, Dr. Supriya Chopra, uh, primary author of their PARSER trial. Uh, congratulations once again, not only on obviously uh, implementing the, the study, but also uh, completing it. Uh, thank you so much for your time and for your contributions. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to talk to you.